Morning, everybody. My name's uh, David Snoke, uh, and I'm going to be bringing the word to you this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, Pastor Matt preached on uh, part of the text that we're going to look at this morning. Before that, I realized I forgot to tell uh, kids there is children's church this morning, right? Good. So um, I'm going to actually uh, go back to read a little bit of what uh, Pastor Matt read last week and bring out just a few different things uh, this week about it and connect it to the passage that comes right after that. So if you look uh, in, uh, on page 6 of your bulletin, uh, we have the, uh, the word uh, for this morning. And our custom here is at the end that I will say this is the word of the Lord and the response is thanks be to God. So hear God's word from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law of the Lord, the, the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, and each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to the day of the people of Israel, they had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, as you heard uh, from, uh, from Jim so far in the service, um, the title and the theme for this morning is uh, Marks of a Revived Church. We're talking about revival. And that word is not a real common one for us. <clears throat> a lot of times people might associate it, you know, you're driving down the road and you see a sign on a church and it says, Revival Sunday night. Uh, something like that, and so you might associate that with you know playing some loud music or something like that. Uh, but actually, it is a good biblical term. It's a, uh, it really is something that the Lord does uh, in His church. Uh, and the passage that we have in front of us is really, you could say, a revival. <clears throat> it is a, a movement of God's Spirit to bring people together. We're going to look at some of the characteristics of that. But as I was preparing for uh, talking about this passage this week, I was really struck with 
the similarities of this passage with another one from the New Testament, which is in the second chapter of Acts. Both of these, in some ways, are starting points for a new movement uh, in God's kingdom. And uh, here we see the people coming back from exile, uh, moving back to Jerusalem, setting up the city there, setting up temple worship, uh, and reviving the law of Moses and doing those things. Uh, In the New Testament, uh, after Christ, there is a great moment. Lots of people who uh, are familiar with the the book of Acts will remember Acts chapter 2. And so I'm going to read just a little selection of this. This is also in your bulletin on page 7. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to start in the middle of this. And this is basically not too long after Jesus uh, had died and risen again and appeared to the apostles. Uh, And then some days after that, the apostles went out uh, preaching, and the people, it says, were cut to the heart. And so I'm going to start in the middle. It says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came on every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you hear the similarities of those passages? See some of the the common things that are going on there? Now, there is, I would say, kind of a danger in talking about uh, revival, which is you can kind of turn it into a nostalgic thing to say, oh, you know, back in the good old days, that was a real revival. Uh, and boy, you know, how can we just go back to the old days? Uh, and I don't think that's uh, what's really uh, what God wants us to be thinking. Uh, there's also, I think, a danger in thinking, well, if we just do the right techniques, then we can create this. So if we just sort of, uh, you know, come up with the right methods, the right music, uh, the right sermons or whatever, we can turn the crank and we can make this happen. Uh, and as, uh, as uh, Jim talked about earlier, this is really something that we can't ultimately control. Uh, and so on the one hand, we could say these are goals. And in a lot of ways, as I preach through these different points, we could say these are goals for our congregation. These are our goals that we would like to see in any healthy church, in our church here locally. Uh, but at the same time, we have to realize that we can't just make it happen, that it really is a work of God's spirit. But there are times, like the two passages that I just read from, where you really see uh, a remarkable movement of God's Spirit uh, among his people, which then flows over and reaches out to the, the people around them uh, as well. And so I'm going to look then at uh, four of these uh, characteristics, and we really see them in both of the passages uh, that we looked at. Uh, so the first one, uh, and again, your outline, I think, is, uh, is in your bulletin uh, on the next page there. Um, the first is that revivals or revived churches are centered on reverence for the Word of God. So this was the theme of Pastor Matt's sermon last week. And really, the part I didn't read that was just before this, and then uh, <clears throat> flowing on into the part that I did read, you see how much it's centered around the reading of the Law of Moses, uh, which is sometimes called the Torah, and was essentially the Bible for them at the time. And the same way you see in Acts chapter 2, it says that they were uh, devoted to the teaching of the apostles. 
uh, and they were listening to the teaching of the apostles, and again, sort of daily going to hear what was being taught. So I'm not going to go over everything that Matt said last week, and I'm also not going to give you an apologetic for why you should believe the Bible, Uh, but I really want to just sort of focus in on if we really believe the Bible, and we really believe it is from God, that really ought to be a life-changing thing. That really ought to be something that absolutely is amazing to you. And so maybe you've grown up in the church and just sort of like, yeah, yeah, the Bible, Bible. You know, everybody reads the Bible. Uh, or maybe you haven't. <clears throat> but let me just take a step back and say, think about it. If we really have communication from the eternal, infinite omniscient, omnipotent God who created the universe, how can we take that lightly? How can we say, oh yeah, whatever. It's just an infinite, eternal, omnipotent being speaking to me, but who cares? You know, it's just, if you really grasp what we're talking about here, that is just, you know, you could reject it and say, I don't think it's from God. I think it's a lie. But you can't say, I think it's from God, but eh, whatever, it doesn't really matter to me. It's just that that middle option isn't there because it claims to be Uh, from God. So let me throw out um, three things that would be barriers, why it is that oftentimes in the church we aren't struck by that fact. We aren't struck by what we're talking about here, that there is an infinite eternal God speaking to us. So the first one, and, and I have to say all of these are ones that I find for myself as well. So the first one is, it's hard to understand. It takes work, right? The Bible is in many places very difficult to understand. And my response to that basically is, yep, what else would you expect communication from an eternal, infinite, omniscient, omnipotent God to be? Aimed to speak to everybody in the entire world throughout all the ages. Um, Actually, what's kind of amazing is that as much of it is understandable as as it is. And um, some of you uh, know I'm a physicist. Um, There's a famous quote by Einstein who said the most incomprehensible thing about the physical universe is how much of it is comprehensible. <clears throat> the fact that we can actually understand anything about this infinite universe and all of the laws and quantum mechanics and things is really striking, that it's almost like someone's trying to communicate to us. Uh, in the same way it could be said about the Bible, actually, it shouldn't be surprising that it's hard to understand. It should be surprising that as much of it is as easy to understand as it is because you're trying to interface with an infinite being with infinite intelligence uh, and trying to speak to you in many different ways and many different cultures for many different peoples. Uh, and so the bottom line for that is if you really believe it is what uh, we say it is, then it's worth taking the time to work hard to try to understand it. And that doesn't mean you're just going to crack it open and just put your finger down and immediately understand wherever your finger landed. Uh, It means actually putting in some work to understand it. Okay, second barrier on uh, really being revived with the Bible. Attacks on the Bible by our culture. How many, I mean, everybody experiences the Internet these days, right? And you just can't go very far without encountering somebody who says, you can't possibly believe that. Right? Uh, We all feel that kind of attack uh, from our culture. Uh, And in general, uh, if you think about this as a word given by God to many, many different cultures, then cultures are all completely different all around the world. How could there be a word that wouldn't offend some of those cultures in at least some ways? Right? And so Tim Keller, a very famous preacher in our denomination, 
uh, basically made this point uh, that if you're talking about uh, a word which is aimed to a culture that doesn't believe in forgiveness and believes strongly in revenge, uh, then there's going to be certain parts in that culture where they're like, that is just crazy talking about forgiveness. And then in our culture, we're like, oh, no, no, that's easy. Uh, but telling us to restrain ourselves on our sexual uh, behavior, that's just crazy talk. You know, there, there's, every culture is going to be offended at some point uh, or another. And if you think about it, if it really is from God, what else would you expect? Uh, and so, again, it takes work. And you see that in the passage that we had in front of us. And Matt uh, talked and uh, touched on this last week. You see the um, leaders, uh, Ezra uh, and Nehemiah and the Levites, going and explaining the passages to the people. Uh, they weren't just throwing it out there like a magic formula, but they were explaining what it meant, uh, how to understand it, uh, and so forth. Uh, and the third barrier, I would say, for <clears throat> really uh, taking Scripture uh, as exciting as it could be, and this is one that I would say that I also uh, definitely can relate to, is haven't you ever found yourself saying, you know, God, I really think you should give me a personal message directly and not make me go to a book. Haven't you found yourself saying that? Like, God, you know, why do I have to go to your book? Like, you should just come and talk to me personally. Uh, And then I would definitely be excited about that. Uh, But here's where we get to, uh, I would say, the starting point of a revival mindset, which is a matter of humility. And I can't put it... more simply than this, who are you to tell God how to speak to you? The beginning of revival <clears throat> is humility and saying he is the omnipotent, omniscient <clears throat> Lord over creation and you're telling him he has to speak to you in such and such a way or you're not listening? Uh, who's in charge here? Who's the creator of the universe? Who has all the infinite power? Uh, and essentially, and again, I, I, I hear this in myself too, uh, it's, a, it's a really a, a position of arrogance to say that I demand that the creator of the universe come and talk to me the way that I want, instead of him telling me where I should go to hear from him. Now, I do think there is a place for making sure that it's really from God. There's a lot of competing things out there in the world that people will say, well, this guy who lives in Southern California, that's Jesus, uh, and he has some new words for us. Uh, you do have to be a little skeptical to say, how do I know this is from God? And so I think, again, this is not an apologetic sermon, but there is a place for apologetics to say, well, how did we get this Bible? Uh, how did people make these kind of decisions as to what is the Word of God? And so it is legitimate to say, well, how do we know that this really is uh, the Word from God? But it is not legitimate to say the only way I will believe it is, is if God does a personal song and dance for me. That's not how we approach an infinite and eternal God. So it's legitimate to say maybe this isn't from him, but you don't have the option as a creation to say the creator has to do what I say. Uh, And the beginning of revival is when we humble ourselves and say, God, you speak to me and let me listen to you and not me be the one dictating to you how you should interact with me. Uh, And that is one that I would say that is the beginning of revival, reverence for God, listening to God, uh, listening uh, reverently, Uh, and impatience. Okay, second uh, attribute of revival. (coughs) Um, (coughs) It starts with sincere, heartfelt repentance. You see that in both of the passages uh, that I looked at. In verse uh, 9 of the uh, Nehemiah passage, it says, For the people wept as they heard the words of of the law. 
And in the same way, in uh, the part that I didn't read, the very beginning of uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what should we do? Uh, When we come before God and accept that he is the Lord and we're not, and that he is in the role of judge over us and we're not in the role of judge over him, that can be a stunningly convicting thing to realize that I am accountable to this infinite and eternal being. And it should lead to the reaction of, tell me what to do. And that's what happens in both of these passages uh, that we look for. Uh, in the in Nehemiah passage, they had been in exile. Uh, they weren't generally reading the Bible. They were just kind of trying to stay alive. They get the Bible. They start reading it here in this lengthy passage. And as they're reading it, they say, wait a minute. This is such and such a day of the month. And according to the law of Moses and the ceremonial law, you're supposed to have this thing called the Feast of Booths. And actually, here in Pittsburgh, we see this uh, once a year, right? So you probably, if you've driven around Squirrel Hill, you see little tents and booths outside of synagogues uh, that are still the practice of this Feast of Booths. And so the people realize this was written in the Law of Moses. And so they just do it. And they say, all right, it's what it says in the Bible. We, we need to do it. And I was really encouraged many years ago in the, uh, in the uh, 90s, right after the uh, wall between Eastern Europe and Western Europe came down and went on a couple trips to Romania. And in the first few years after uh, <clears throat> that wall came down, I visited Romania and met Christians who had just become Christians out of, become, you know, before that being atheist, communist, uh, and they just were like, just give me the Bible, whatever it says, I'm just going to do it. Uh, and it was just a sweet spirit about uh, the way it was then, because <clears throat> they didn't have all these cynical filters of, oh, you know, but you can't possibly mean that, or it was like, okay, it says we're supposed to do this in our ceremony, okay, let's just do that. And that's what you see here with the, the people at the time of Nehemiah. He says, well, you've got to do all these things, uh, and they just do it. And the other thing that it says uh, that he told them to do, uh, in verse 10, he says, send portions to anybody who has nothing ready. In other words, you're giving to those around you who don't have enough. You're sharing your food so that other people will have it as well. And we see that in Acts chapter 2. It says they sold their possessions and shared with anyone in need. And so that's another attribute of a revival is overflowing generosity. That people are feeling blessed and they're overflowing uh, and blessing to other people. Now, just as an aside, I'll mention just a little detail about the way our church is organized. Uh, We have deacons and there's something called a deacon's fund. And the deacon's fund goes to helping the poor, basically. It goes to people who maybe at the end of the month, uh, their bills have fallen short, you know, they, they can't make ends meet. Uh, for whatever reason, the deacons meet on a regular basis uh, and help out people financially. And <coughs> on the one hand, we have the general budget, and that's budgeted, uh, as Jim talked about, each year. This is what we're going to do with this amount of money. The deacons fund, there's no upper bound. As much as is given, that's how generous we can be to the poor. Uh, and so that is something that uh, would be a great thing to see, right? That the deacons fund is just overflowing with money. Uh, as it was in the time of the uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, where it says they were just sharing and overflowing with generosity toward one another. Uh, I'm going to come back to this point next week when we look at the next chapter in Nehemiah. There's an entire chapter on a prayer of confession. 
uh, where the people are convicted and they pray to God. Uh, but uh, just to remind you again, this second point then is that the revival starts with genuine repentance. <clears throat> Genuinely saying, I feel convicted and so convicted that I don't want to just feel bad. I want to actually do things differently. Uh, moving on to my third point, uh, another attribute of revival is they lead to sincere rejoicing <clears throat> and fellowship. Uh, and this is a, actually a, kind of a funny little thing here, actually. In verse 9, it says, The people wept at the words of the law when they heard them, again, because they were convicted that they hadn't been doing all the things that God had told them to do. And the next uh, paragraph there, you sort of see Ezra and the Levites saying, Stop, stop! You're, you're weeping too loudly. This is supposed to be a time of joy. And so they rechannel all of that energy into rejoicing and fellowship. So let me take a step back again and just ask you a question. If you were to think of um, the kingdom of God in its purest form, what mental image do you have? What do you think that looks like? Uh, for many people, they might think, well, it's a bunch of somber saints sitting on clouds playing harps, being very somber. Right? That may be the way a lot of people think that Christians think about the kingdom of God. Or maybe it would be uh, sitting in a monastery, very quiet and introspective, uh, you know, sort of meditating on your sins. Uh, well, as you can already tell from the passage that we looked at, that's not the picture the Bible gives. The Bible, in multiple, multiple places, the picture is always that of a party or a feast. When we are in heaven, it will be the great supper of the Lamb, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, as he uh, brings the bride, his church, uh, to join him. Uh, and here we see uh, Nehemiah saying, um, this is a day holy to the Lord, therefore you should not be grieving, but instead you should be rejoicing. Uh, look at that in verse 10. He says, <coughs> go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. In other words, you should eat fatty foods and drink alcohol because this day is holy. Yes. Right? That's what he says. Um, and so the picture that we have of the kingdom of God of the revived church is one of basically a, a really good party. Uh, it's a special kind of party, though. It's a party to which everyone is invited. And I'm going to come back to this. But it's a spirit of generosity, as I talked about, and it's also a spirit of hospitality. And you see this again in Acts chapter 2. It says that people were breaking bread in their homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So here's another sort of diagnostic question for you. What is your Christianity like if you're a Christian? Do you feel tight? Do you feel like you have a tight heart, like you're constantly worrying whether you stepped out of line, whether you uh, did something wrong, whether somebody's going to judge you? Or do you feel blessed to overflowing, so you just feel like throwing a party and inviting a lot of strangers and strange people over? Uh, the second picture is what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what revival looks like. And it comes about when people realize that they're forgiven in Christ, and they've been convicted by their sin, but then they hear the gospel and they rejoice in the fact that God has given grace to them. And in the Old Testament, uh, this is through the sacrificial system that they sinned, but God had set up the animal sacrifice system, which they again do in the, in the context of the passage that we read. 
Uh, in the New Testament, we would say that all of those animal sacrifices pointed to Jesus, that Jesus is our sacrifice. In both cases, Old and New Testament, there is a rejoicing over the fact that we can be reconciled to God, that our sins do not put an infinite barrier between us and this omniscient God, but rather, even though we have offended him, we can be brought into his presence, and that should make us joyful. As we say, yes, I'm convicted, and yet God has not rejected me. God has actually brought me near, and therefore I should be feeling so blessed that I feel like just overflowing uh, to the rest of the, uh, of the community. Uh, so now, many of you have been here in this church long enough to hear my famous hospitality sermon. Uh, um, about once every couple of years, uh, Matt says, preach the hospitality sermon again. Um, I'm not going to give that whole sermon, uh, but I will just say this. Hospitality just means having people over, or if you don't have a place to invite them to, treating them to lunch or something like that. Uh, and every time I preach that sermon, there are heads nodding, people saying, yes, absolutely, this is a good thing for the church to do. Those other people should be inviting me over all the time. <laughs> right? Uh, but revival is when you say, I should be the inviter, not the invitee. I should be the one who is feeling blessed to overflowing, and so that I'm the one inviting people over, uh, and um, I don't make excuses uh, for not doing that. Uh, now, in our church... There's some ways we try to make this a little bit um, uh, more part of our DNA. Uh, one you heard about earlier is uh, picnics and potlucks. Next week we're going to have a picnic uh, joint with another church. Uh, we have weekly community groups. And if you think about it, uh, the community group is like a weekly party in some ways. Uh, usually there's refreshments. If you've never been to a community group, by the way, there's, some of these community groups have really good refreshments, so you should, you should check them out. Uh, there's always a time for fellowship, and again, centered around the Word of God uh, and prayer. Um, also, we try to build a, a sense in which people are individually inviting other people to their houses. Uh, and um, I, I really want to encourage you on that. It's, it's, you can't be legalistic about this. You know, sometimes people say, well, how often is often enough? to have people over to your house and not be violating the law of hospitality in the Bible. It doesn't give a, a rule. But I would say often enough is if people look at you and say, yeah, that's often, right? You often have people to your house. That's often enough. Uh, and again, <clears throat> we all exempt ourselves from this for one reason or another. Some people will say, well, I'll be hospitable when I'm married and have a home. Before then, I don't need to be hospitable. Uh, or <clears throat> some people say, well, I can't be hospitable now because I'm too busy with kids uh, and I'm working on my home, so no chance to be hospitable now. Or some people say, you know what, I've worked hard all my life, uh, my kids are all grown, and now I need a rest. Uh, you, you get the trend here? There's always an excuse all the way along, right? Uh, or some of us may say, I'll only invite those people who I, uh, like me and make me feel comfortable. Uh, and in the church, there's a lot of people very different from you. And uh, I'll talk about that more in a minute. But uh, in general, as I said, the church, <clears throat> the kingdom of God, the revived church, is a party in which everybody is invited. And it means that we have an open door, that we invite people, maybe that we wouldn't normally hang out with. We bring them to our homes. We go out. We meet them for lunch and so on. And it, and it really is, uh, I would say, a goal that your friends are in this church. I've, I've known churches in which people came on Sunday morning, 
And they heard a sermon, they said, well, that was very nice. And they went home, and they never saw each other again until the next Sunday. Uh, and that's a church with very little fellowship and very little sense of rejoicing because there's no parties. Uh, and so uh, that is something that we really deliberately encourage in this church. As much as we're in a university environment and we want to encourage critical thinking about uh, culture and so on, uh, it's not a negotiable to sacrifice fellowship uh, in order to be more intellectual. Uh, we need to be the body of Christ rejoicing uh, as we see in these two passages we have uh, looked at. So finally, <clears throat> sort of connecting to that, to that same theme, uh, the fourth uh, sign, and I, by the way, these four I don't say are the only things that make revival. There's other things, but I'm just looking at in this passage the things that jump out. The fourth is <clears throat> that revival leads to a corporate identity with the people of God. What we see in both of these here is groups of people doing things together. Uh, we have uh, the ceremony of the Feast of Booths. We have people listening to uh, the law being expounded. That, by the way, was uh, pretty much the beginning of the synagogue system in the Jewish uh, uh, church because they, those teachers set up a system by which the law would be taught to the people. Um, in the, uh, in the uh, Acts chapter 2, again, you see them, it says that they were attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes. Almost all commentators would say that is the Lord's Supper, uh, such as we have before us. And in general, for both of these, you have to say this is organized religion. right? This is not individuals getting revived. This is a corporate body of people who have a sense of identity uh, belonging to that body. So remember I used that picture of the kingdom of God is a party to which everybody is invited. And you might say, well, why would anyone opt out of that party? Why, you know, why would you reject that? Well, in the Bible, a lot of times the picture is given. The reason why people don't want to go to that party is because they don't want to go with the other people who were invited. <clears throat> I want a party where everybody is like me and makes me feel comfortable. I don't want to go to a party where those people are there. And the same thing happens in the church today. There are people on a regular basis uh, in our culture who leave the church, who maybe grew up in a Christian home, uh, or for one reason or another. And I've talked to many of these people. And um, <clears throat> a lot of different reasons. Everybody has their own story. But one of the themes that uh, sometimes comes up is somebody who'd be very critical of the church. And they say, well, the church is doing this wrong, and the church is doing that wrong. Uh, and... Um, Basically, you know, they make me embarrassed of the things that they're saying. And to put it in a little more stark terms, somebody visits a church, they go to a church, and they walk in and they say, hmm, these people are too old, or these people are too uncool, or they're too uneducated or too rural. I, I'm not really comfortable being associated with this type of person. Uh, and that makes us pull back. It makes us draw back. And we live in general in a society, which is many sociology people will call it an alienated society, where <clears throat> I want to basically carefully have my own little nest and then carefully pick and choose the, just a few people who I allow into my little world, uh, and everything basically is just the way that I like it. And the converse of that, of course, is if I have any problems, my problems are entirely my own to solve, <clears throat> and uh, I wouldn't think of going to somebody to actually... Uh, have my problems or, or to even share my problems. 
Basically, it's no different from what the Pharisees said to Jesus uh, back in the day. When they said, Jesus, how can you let those sinners eat with you? You are kind of guilt by association. Those people are embarrassing type of people for you to be associated with. Uh, You shouldn't be associated with them. And so, uh, you know, you should know better than that. And so we may have different standards for what embarrasses us, but it's the same impulse. It's the same impulse of saying, I want to be surrounded by a group of very beautiful people who are just like me uh, and do everything that I like, and I don't really feel comfortable uh, around different types of people. The church, fundamentally, is a bringing together in a corporate identity of people from all walks of life, every tribe, tongue, nation, class, education, whatever uh, you want to slice it. Uh, and we have a very visible demonstration of this this morning in the, uh, <clears throat> the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is also sometimes called communion. And that communion, there's two senses of union in that. One is it is a sense of union. You are proclaiming that you are united to Christ when you take communion. But in the same action, you are also proclaiming that you are united to everybody else who's united to Christ. And so when you come to communion uh, this morning, uh, think about the symbolism of what we're doing here, that we're doing this jointly. It's not, uh, you know, just you and God. Uh, We are here as a group having a feast, so to speak, uh, sort of a uh, a symbolic feast. And actually in our church we do something deliberately, uh, which you'll see, which is that we gather a group and then everybody in the group uh, takes the elements at the same time. And that's actually symbolic of saying, you know, basically we are doing this jointly. It's not a drive-through where everybody just sort of like runs through and gets their own thing, uh, you know, and takes it home with them. Uh, But this is a joint festival. It's a joint feast in which we are uh, associating ourselves. So this is going to be this last point. I'm going to end with this. Uh, This is going to be more and more, I think, uh, an issue in uh, in the coming years. Uh, And it's already a great issue around the world. Are you willing to be associated with the church if it is persecuted, if it is mocked? There are places in the world where people are having serious persecution. And uh, one of them is China. And just to say a little bit about uh, China, there's absolutely no law at all in China against reading a Bible privately in your own home. They have religious freedom. The people are being persecuted are being persecuted when they show up for church. So if you said, I'm a private Christian, I'm just going to stay home and read my Bible, you would not be persecuted in China. Uh, It is when you go to church that you get persecuted. And that's true in many places around the world. And I would say it is sort of the the coming question. You know, all of these questions for revival, you could kind of cast them this way. Do you really want it? Do you really want to work hard to to understand the Word of God? Do you really want to repent of your sins? Uh, do you really want to be generous to overflowing and have people that are different from you over to your house? Uh, and do you really want to be associated with those people in the church, uh, with people who are very different from you? Are you willing, uh, as you come before communion, in some sense you're proclaiming, I'm going to stick with the people of Jesus through thick and thin. These are my people. Uh, and that's what we see in this passage here. They're collectively using the word we a lot, and they're doing things together, and they're having these ceremonies uh, in the Old Testament, the Feast of Booze, in the New Testament, the breaking of bread uh, and communion. Um, 
And there are people, in my point three, I said the church should be characterized by a lot of fun and parties. There are some people who will hang out with the church for years and love it because it has lots of parties. And then they move and they go to someplace else where the um, church just doesn't seem to have as you know, much excitement, as much fellowship. And so they say, well, this is not for me, and they leave. Uh, in that case, what they really were about was the fun and not about really responding to God, which I said was the starting point of all of this, right? True fellowship is when people encounter Jesus. So this is going to be my compl- concluding <clears throat> point here. If we look at the flow through these four points, it starts with an encounter with Jesus in Scripture. It moves to conviction as we uh, realize that we have gone against God's ways. Then it leads to joy as we realize the gospel of forgiveness. And that should lead to overflow as we then uh, overflow to other people. And that overflow leads us to be willing to associate with people who are very different from us uh, in many different ways, economically, racially, culturally, whatever. Uh, And that's the program. Uh, And so many people like the Pharisees would say, well, that looks good from outside, but when it really comes down to it, I I don't really want that. So in some ways, the first step is, do I even want this? But this is what uh, the leaders of this church pray for, and this is what uh, God can do in our midst. Uh, We can't make it happen, but it happens as individually our hearts are convicted and we come to God uh, on his terms. Let's pray.